0: that's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon.
1: Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
2: In the darkness of a January night in 1964, Dick Kane took up his position next to a motel room door his Tommy gun at the ready.
1: He hushed the reporters around him and then nodded to his team. As the head of the Cook County Sheriff's Special Investigations Unit, he didn't want to give the criminals inside a chance to hear them.
2: Rarely did detectives bring along reporters for a raid, but Dick liked having them around. He knew if they experienced the adrenaline of a bust, they'd really feel like they'd gotten a scoop.
1: On his signal, the team barged through the door Guns at the ready. The Boxes of stolen prescription drugs awaited them inside, stacked high, just as Dick had anticipated. He turned triumphantly to the reporters' cameras, a hard working cop who just pulled off a big bust.
2: But that wasn't the real reason Dick was smiling. Unbeknownst to Chicago's journalists, he and his men had intentionally placed the drugs there. It was a setup. And it had gone perfectly. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden.
1: And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld
2: and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them.
1: This is our first episode about Richard Kane, an infamous Chicago police officer and mobster in the 1950s and 60s. Dick, as he was known, was a sort of dual agent. While his official job was solving high-profile cases for the Chicago PD, he also made big money for the men at the top of the outfit.
2: This week, we'll learn how the mean streets of Chicago shaped a young Dick Kane during the Great Depression, and how he landed on the radar of mob boss Sam Giancarna. From there, we'll follow Dick's fateful rise in the Chicago Police Department.
1: Richard Kane learned the value of trading on his reputation at a young age. He was charismatic and good-looking, smart and manipulative. Above all else, though, Dick knew how to tell people what they wanted to hear and how to use the media to amplify his own mystique.
2: This strategy worked for Dick for much of his career, though probably not quite as often as he believed it did. But his habitual fact-bending also means in the present it's hard to know just which portions of the stories told about him are true.
1: There are the tall tales of police work Dick told his relatives, which differed from those he told colleagues and reporters. Then there are the versions that circulated around the world of Chicago crime, which were often bolstered by the mob's self-aggrandizing tendencies. Even those closest to Dick rarely knew the whole truth.
2: Take one example from 1959, According to the official Chicago police report, the actions of Vice Squad Detectives Dick Kane and his partner, Jerry Shallow, on March 22nd were straightforward and commendable. Exemplary, even.
1: But the version of the story told both by Dick and a supposed witness is far darker.
2: On the night of March 21st, Dick and Jerry were ready to carry out the final stage of a sting operation. They'd been tracking their suspect, Harry Fiegel, for a while. It was game time.
1: The intention was to end Fiegel's blackmail operation. At the time, homosexuality was still illegal in Illinois. Fiegel routinely coerced underaged boys into baiting closeted gay men. Then he'd beat the men up until they agreed to pay him for his silence.
2: According to the official police report, Dick and Jerry planned to use a recently arrested associate of Fiegel's to their advantage. After promising the man immunity, they set a plan in motion. The informant would set a trap for Fiegel and Dick Kane would be the bait.
1: Allegedly, around 2 a.m. on March 22, 1959, Dick and Jerry waited by a prearranged payphone in Chicago's downtown Loop area. Their informant called Fiegel to tell him he'd found another blackmail target. They set a meeting for a few hours later at 5.15 a.m.
2: According to the report, Dick waited alone at the meeting spot. As anticipated, Fiegel showed up and tried to entrap the detective, forcing Dick into a nearby alley and threatening to beat him up. Dick begged him not to, Fiegel then demanded $100 to make the problem go away. That would be worth almost $900 today.
1: Dick handed over the cash, but as soon as Fiegel took it, the detective told him he was under arrest. According to plan, Dick's partner Jerry ran into the alley as backup.
2: But then things went sideways. Panicked, Fiegel allegedly pulled the gun on the two officers and started firing.
1: With no choice but to protect themselves, the two detectives drew their own weapons and returned fire, killing Fiegel. As a result, Dick and Jerry were commended for their exemplary work.
2: Of course, this wasn't the way Dick Kane liked to retell the story. In his version of events, he sauntered out to meet Fiegel in the alley. No one dragged him anywhere, even in service of an operation.
1: And he certainly emphasized he was the hero, saying Jerry ran late, leaving Dick on his own when Fiegel started firing wildly at him.
2: Still, Dick recalled he worried that he'd run out of bullets when, finally, Jerry arrived to save the day. In one shot, Jerry blew Fiegel through the head, ending the confrontation. The two partners ribbed each other, Jerry teasing Dick about his tiny police-issue gun and Dick busting Jerry's chops for being late.
1: Fiegel's lawyer fiercely argued that both these stories were wrong. He'd found a witness who'd been with Fiegel at a bar that night of the 21st, which was more than eight miles south of where Fiegel was killed. As the two men parted ways around 4.30 a.m., the witness had seen three police detectives pull up dick jerry and their boss the man who'd signed off on the official report
2: the autopsy report also suggested the shot to Fiegel's head was from the top down as if Fiegel had been on his knees
1: and the most damning point as Fiegel's lawyer insisted was that his client never carried a gun His lawyer found evidence suggesting that the weapon Fiegel was supposedly carrying could be traced back to Dick Kane, meaning it was planted after the murder.
2: The only version of that story that mattered though was the official Chicago PD stamped one. Dick Kane was a star in the force and one of the most well-connected men on both sides of the law. Within weeks, All investigations into Dick and Jerry's conduct were dropped and Fiegel's family issued an apology.
1: As a cop, Dick Kane may have learned how to make his own luck, but he didn't start out as a charmed kid.
2: His maternal grandparents came to Chicago as struggling Italian immigrants in the early 20th century, a time when Irish and Italian street gangs already controlled most of the city. His grandfather was murdered by a local kidnapping gang in 1928. In death, he became a local icon.
1: Just under three years later, in October 1931, Richard Kane was born. His early life was far from charmed. His 19-year-old mother Lydia had never liked kids, and having her own didn't change that. She resented having to tend to the baby and took her anger out on her husband John.
2: In 1938, when Dick was barely seven years old, Lydia and John divorced. Dick would spend half the year in Chicago with Lydia and the other half with his paternal grandparents on their farm in Michigan.
1: Lonelier than ever, Dick found himself to be a perpetual outsider, fitting in neither in Chicago's rough Italian neighborhood nor in Michigan's Irish farm country. The teenagers in both communities made sure he knew he didn't belong. Soon, Dick learned to stand up for himself by lashing out. Rather than wait to be picked on, he took the offensive.
2: By the time he was about 15 in 1946, Dick was tired of the constant shuffling back and forth between worlds. He quit school in Michigan and headed back to Chicago, for good this time. He knew he'd have independence there, where Lydia didn't care if he hung around with the neighborhood street gangs.
1: For enterprising young men in Chicago's Italian-American community, the post-World War II era was ripe with opportunities. Sure, Dick didn't have years' worth of boyhood friends to vouch for him, but he used his street smarts and his martyred grandfather's name to earn his place.
2: It's likely, too, his return to Chicago put him on the radar of a man named Sam Giancarna, one of his mother's childhood friends. Giancarna was no average Joe. He was fast becoming one of the most powerful men in Chicago organized crime.
1: Still, in 1947, Chicago wasn't enough for Dick. He craved adventure and wanted to see more of the world. The city was starting to feel small and stifling. That summer, the 16-year-old decided a major uprooting was necessary. He joined the army.
2: The military took Dick first to Japan and then to a station in the US Virgin Islands. In the Caribbean, he fell in love with a 25-year-old woman with a four-year-old daughter. And much to his surprise, Dick loved having a ready-made family. Suddenly, he wasn't alone in the world. The couple married in 1949.
1: Desperate to keep this fairy tale alive, Dick lied to his new wife about his age, telling her that he too was 25 rather than 18. the lie provided an unexpected opportunity with seven extra years to account for dick realized that he could fill that gap with whatever stories he wanted he could be the person he wanted to be a sophisticated experienced adventurer not the uneducated unwanted kid from chicago
2: the past that dick described to his new wife went something like this He'd finished high school and studied criminal psychology for a year. Then he'd spent six years in the military, trained in counterintelligence, and eventually went on to serve in the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. The most upstanding path he could dream up.
1: When Dick moved his new family back to the U.S. in 1950 after his honorable discharge, it was under the persona of this 26-year-old, quote, veteran spy. It seemed even Dick believed in the transformation. He was confident and self-assured for the first time in his life. All that was left to do was build the next stage of his career as the hero he claimed to be.
2: Coming up, we'll find out how Dick's crafty skills quickly made him an asset to both the mob and the Chicago police.
1: Now back to the story.
2: After serving three years in the army and marrying a woman seven years his senior, 19-year-old Dick Kane moved his new family back to the United States in 1950. But Dick was hiding a big secret. He told his new wife, as well as potential employers, that he was a 26-year-old veteran with experience in espionage and intelligence gathering. It was all one big facade to cover up Dick's fear of being seen as a young outsider.
1: Dick's first stop was Miami, his wife's choice, since it was close to her family in the Caribbean. And soon, touting his new, more sophisticated identity, Dick got a job at a PI firm run by a Cuban expat who was friends with Cuba's former president, Valgencio Batista.
2: In his new job, Dick learned how to install and run wiretaps and became practiced in surveillance, even if most of the cases he worked were for disgruntled spouses. He also learned Spanish. To him, it wasn't that different from Italian.
1: Before long, his role expanded by leaps and bounds. His boss trusted him enough to send him to Cuba on small espionage missions for General Batista, keeping tabs on his political enemies. Dick's recon work likely helped in the coup Batista led in 1952, in which he overthrew the elected president and installed himself as a military dictator.
2: Dick was invigorated. He'd picked espionage work for his fake resume because it sounded adventurous and interesting. But he hadn't known he'd take to the work so well. As his confidence grew, he knew he wanted more than occasional sting missions, Opportunities in Miami were proving limited. If he wanted to keep growing his career, Dick needed to be able to tap into his family networks in the Midwest.
1: At just 22 years old in 1953, Dick moved his family back to Chicago. He started working for UPS as a security officer, investigating everything from stolen packages to credit card fraud. While he was good at this job, He wouldn't limit himself to working on the right side of the law
2: shortly after getting back to town dick reconnected with his family friend sam giancana by 1953 giancana had become one of the most powerful bosses of the chicago outfit meaning he had the ears of influential figures around the entire corrupt city
1: giancana's relationship with dick could have been many things Perhaps he was the father figure that Dick had been cheated of, who gave him approval and mentorship. Or perhaps he was the glamorous mobster that Dick sought to emulate. Or maybe he just offered Dick something a bit more exciting than investigating parcel crimes.
2: Whatever the reason, within the year, Dick started working with Giancarna and the outfit, committing the very crimes he was meant to be investigating. Using his inside knowledge of UPS systems and warehouses, he helped the mob pull off numerous jobs, stealing packages and trucks.
1: To Dick, it was a fun game, trying to structure the perfect job based on the intel he'd learned. He still solved the majority of cases and was actually considered the best investigator on the staff. No one ever suspected that he was behind a handful of unsolved thefts and hijackings.
2: With each job, Dick's confidence grew. He became assured in his ability to play both sides. He was both a legitimate lawman and a made man in the Mafia. It felt just like real espionage, gaining everyone's trust while being a free agent, only out for himself.
1: But parcel heists, much like parcel busts, could only afford so much in terms of glory. Now that he'd gotten a taste of the high life, he was too restless to stay a UPS investigator. Sensing this ambition, Giancana suggested that Dick might have interest in joining the Chicago police.
2: By the mid-1950s, corruption was already well entrenched in the Chicago PD. Every major interest in the city had ties to the police, from the political machines to organized crime, Political parties virtually owned police wards, installing their own men in positions of power. As the wards were often dominated by one ethnic group, that meant the police force followed suit. Irish neighborhood, Irish cops, and so forth. While the police did enforce the law, they also used their privileged positions to protect their own and enrich themselves
1: to Giancana, Dick was the perfect addition to the Chicago PD. While Giancana already had lots of officers on his payroll, few were made men he could trust. Plus, Dick clearly had the investigative skills to be a good detective.
2: Dick liked the idea too, but he wasn't sure he'd be accepted into the police academy, even with Giancana's influence. A quick records check would prove that Dick hadn't even finished high school. Even worse, both his 5'7 height and his terrible eyesight were below the academy's specifications.
1: Giancana told Dick not to worry about it. He'd pull some strings. When Dick applied to the police academy a few months later, his entrance requirements were waived and he was accepted. By summer of 1956, Dick Kane was a freshly minted Chicago police officer.
2: As Dick's professional identity started to shift, so did his personal one. He became more of a womanizer. By that summer, his wife learned he'd not only taken a mistress, but gotten her pregnant.
1: His wife promptly left, taking their daughters with her back to the U.S. Virgin Islands. And though Dick was loath to go back to being a family man, He recognized his reputation in the police department likely hinged on it. So he married his mistress shortly after she gave birth to twins.
2: Once that fire was extinguished, Dick could turn his focus back to work. For many young police officers, moving up the ranks was a long course, years long. New recruits could often expect several years of patrol work before they'd be assigned to a more elite division.
1: But most rookie officers didn't have a Chicago mob boss greasing palms and making calls on their behalf. After about a year at the bottom, Dick was promoted to the Vice Squad as a detective.
2: The Vice Squad was a high profile department, carrying out splashy raids on prostitution, gambling, and everything in between. Its arrests regularly made the front page of the Chicago Tribune and Dick all but strolled into the opportunity as a 26-year-old rookie. Although, thanks to his padded resume, everyone thought he was 33.
1: Dick's new salary as a detective was $9,000 a year, worth more than $82.6 thousand today. But he was also being paid under the table by Giancana. In addition to being a vice cop, Dick was serving as the mobster's bagman. Once a month, he delivered the payoffs to all the other crooked cops in the Chicago PD. It didn't take long for everyone to figure out he was Giancana's man, but no one dared make a fuss. Far too much of the city was owned by the outfit.
2: And being crooked didn't mean Dick couldn't also be a dedicated detective. He took pride in being a good investigator, vigorously tracking down criminals and solving crimes He just made a point to never find any evidence against Giancarna. As long as the bookies, madams and abortionists weren't in bed with the outfit, Dick could do his job.
1: In fact, Dick loved the thrill of investigating, of catching people who thought they'd gotten away with their crimes. Even more than the adrenaline rush, he loved the fame that came along with his success.
2: Dick quickly learned how to play the game. He developed relationships with ambitious reporters, inviting them along on raids. In return, they made him into a household name, the rising Chicago cop out to scrub the tarnished city of its vices.
1: As Dick became more successful, he also discovered the unique immunity of his position. As a well-liked cop and a member of the outfit, he was virtually invincible. He got the satisfaction of taking down corrupt public figures without any fear of retaliation from the mob. And he was making steady cash from Giancana without fear of criminal charges. Before long, Dick was playing fast and loose with the rules, confident that he could get away with anything. He took payoffs and even stole from suspects after roughing them up. He knew there was nothing they could do about it.
2: In one case, in 1959, He and Jerry arrested a 68-year-old sex worker on suspicion of having arranged a kidnapping and confiscated nearly $100,000 in cash from her. After an investigation, it turned out she had nothing to do with the kidnapping. When her money was returned, she complained that more than half of it was missing. Of course, no one believed her and nothing was ever done about it.
1: In the end, though, it was Dick's bravado that got him moved off the vice squad, though not in the way he might have expected. In fact, he'd been doing his job so well that he'd started to ruffle the feathers of corrupt politicians. By late 1959, Dick and Jerry's boss caved to the pressure to pull them back. Dick
2: might have been more irritated had a new opportunity not presented itself almost immediately. An ambitious young assistant United States attorney named Richard Ogilvy was building a tax case against Anthony Tony Batters Ocado. To get dirt on one of Chicago's top mob bosses, Ogilvy needed a dogged investigator. The police sent Dick over.
1: It's impossible to know whether this was entirely fortuitous or if Dick volunteered himself. Or perhaps his mentor Giancana pulled some strings to help protect his old friend Tony Accardo. However it happened, the outfit had one of their own assisting the Justice Department in the case against another one of their own.
2: For Dick, this was a dream come true. If he played his cards right, he'd be one of the stars of this high-profile case. Ogilvy too was ambitious and Dick knew he'd go far if he proved himself to the prosecutor.
1: Best of all, it was a real challenge for Dick's skills. He'd hardly need to do much sleuthing, but as a double agent. He'd make Ogilvy like and trust him and appear to be doing his job well, without ever actually betraying Ocardo and Giancana.
2: If he made one big mistake, however, he'd be ruined the outfit and law enforcement would race to bring him down. It was exactly the kind of thrill Dick had craved.
1: Coming up, we'll find out how Dick paid the price for playing both sides.
2: Now, back to the story.
1: In late 1959, 28-year-old Dick Kane, still passing as a 35-year-old, was assigned to investigate a tax case against the mob. Technically, it was a lateral move for the former Vice Squad detective, but it could be a huge opportunity if Dick made the most of it.
2: His temporary boss, Assistant U.S. Attorney Richard Ogilvie, knew Dick was still technically a member of the Chicago PD. What he didn't know was that Dick was also in the pocket of the Chicago outfit.
1: Both Dick and his mentor, Sam Giancana, were thrilled to have Dick on the case. Everyone knew that Tony Accardo, a close colleague of Giancana's, was guilty of tax evasion. The outfit couldn't save Accardo entirely, but they could try to mitigate the damage. With Dick working as the investigator, they could control what the Justice Department knew and whether anyone else went with Accardo. If Dick did his job right, He might even be able to introduce a few flaws that could get an unlucky conviction overturned.
2: Dick quickly impressed Ogilvy with his hard work. The prosecutor had figured a former vice detective would have solid organized crime sources, but Dick delivered far beyond what was expected.
1: Of course, Dick was just feeding Ogilvy the information that Giancana and his men had approved. What Ogilvy thought was dogged detective work was actually just a ruse.
2: Within a few months, by the beginning of 1960, Ogilvy and his team had put together an impressive case against Ocado, thanks in large part to Dick's information. As the outfit had anticipated, a trial was inevitable. And despite some last-ditch efforts to stack the jury, Ocado was convicted.
1: This secured both Ogilvy's legacy as a tough reformer and Dick's reputation as a sharp investigator. Even those who knew he was one of Giancana's men had to admit he'd used his criminal contacts for honorable reasons this time.
2: Dick had done his job so well that he fooled everyone. Except the outfit, of course. When Ocado's lawyer appealed, Dick was very careful to siphon out just enough evidence from the case to jeopardize the conviction. That, added to the fact that three key witnesses were murdered before the appeal, all but sealed Ocado's release. The conviction was overturned.
1: The actual result of the case mattered little by then though. Dick had proven to be a savvy double agent and earned Ogilvy's trust and respect and his reputation as an investigator had garnered him even more exciting jobs.
2: Within months, in early 1960, Dick was offered a new gig, spying on a personal investigator employed by the mayor of Chicago, on behalf of the state's attorney's office, of course.
1: By this point, Mayor Richard J. Daley had been in office for just five years, but had already solidified the political machine that would maintain his power for a record 21 years. Often referred to as the boss, Daley embodied Chicago's corrupt old-school style of politics.
2: It was no surprise then that the Cook County State's attorney, Ben Adamowski wasn't the mayor's biggest fan. He and Mayor Daley were also longtime political rivals. When he became state's attorney, Adamowski set his targets on Daley's political machine.
1: When he learned that Daley had a private investigator on his staff with a $100,000 budget and no external oversight, Adamowski saw his opportunity. There were rumors that the investigator ran the mayor's gambling operations but it was also possible that he was working to smear and bring down rivals like Adamowski. If the attorney could unveil this corruption in an election year nonetheless, he'd certainly boost his own reputation.
2: Since the state's attorney had no business spying on the mayor's office, Adamowski needed someone else to do his dirty work. Fresh off the Ocado case, Ogilvy recommended Dick And his former partner jerry
1: upon hearing the word undercover dick was in the deal was only sweetened when he realized the job would entail wiretaps the skill he prided himself on
2: in the spring of 1960 dick and jerry set up a private investigations firm opaquely called accurate laboratories and got to work They rented office space on the same hallway as their target and started to cultivate their cover.
1: Once they'd moved in, Dick snuck into the private investigators' offices and tapped the phones. They also set up a camera above the door.
2: Unfortunately for Dick and Jerry, someone spotted the camera within a week of them setting it up and immediately called the police. It didn't take much in the way of police work to find the bugs in the phones and trace everything back to Dick and Jerry.
1: Suddenly, Dick was no longer the sophisticated undercover spy, but a rogue policeman caught spying on the mayor.
2: As had been the agreement, Adamowski's office denied any knowledge of Dick and Jerry's investigation. The two cops suddenly found themselves barraged by the press, further embarrassing the Chicago PD after they'd already caused their fair share of trouble in Vice. There was no way they could buy or glad hand their way out of this one.
1: As the police launched an internal investigation, Dick and Jerry decided on a compromise. Jerry would cooperate and Dick would resign. That way, at least one of them would keep their job.
2: But resigning from the Chicago police force didn't let Dick off the hook. By spying on the mayor, many fellow officers felt Dick had betrayed their own. While his position in the outfit had been part of the department's culture, political corruption and backstabbing the mayor were beyond the pale.
1: Suddenly, Dick found himself the target of two factions, angry policemen and the powerful democratic political machine. Even the outfit couldn't protect him, Salvaging any part of Dick's reputation depended on keeping those connections out of the spotlight.
2: With no other option, Dick left Chicago. He bounced around first to Michigan, then to Missouri, hoping things would cool down. There, he was eventually hired as a polygraph operator in a police corruption case. But his narcissistic tendencies couldn't fit the confines of the minor role. Dick grandstanded at daily press conferences and found himself out of a job once again.
1: By the fall of 1960, Dick was back in Chicago and barely scraping by. No one in law enforcement wanted to be associated with him. Within a matter of months, he'd gone from golden boy to pariah.
2: Dick needed a way out, and Sam Giancana's timing couldn't have been more perfect.
1: The mob boss called Dick in late September, 1960, with a job offer. Giancana had just gotten a contract with the CIA to carry out an espionage operation in Cuba, where Dick had gotten his start nearly a decade earlier.
2: Dick didn't even need to hear the details. Suddenly, all the political investigations and vice squad busts felt like preparation for the work he was destined to do all along.
1: As he boarded a plane bound for Miami, Dick felt better than he had in months. He was getting a fresh start, back where it all began, this time in his dream job, spying for the CIA.
2: Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Dick's wayward ambition ultimately brought him down, and pitted him against the very men who'd sponsored him for years.
1: You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
2: To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
2: Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murdon.